it is a structured program, but it's also adapted to the context of the school. Schools have the people and the programs and the policies and systems that you can purposefully sort of thread together into a culture of care. And, and also, you know, to create a culture where it's okay not to be okay. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. I wanted to share with you a new way to support the show. Let's just say it's as easy as buying a cup of coffee. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please consider buying me a cup of coffee. Check out the site buymeacoffee.com slash Levin. There, you'll have the option of buying me a one-time cup or cups of coffee or to become a member in order to purchase me some coffee monthly. Your support will help me to not only get caffeinated up, but also to offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. Again, you can find the site at buymeacupofcoffee.com slash Levin. A-L-L-E-V-I-N. It's easy to do and would really help me out greatly. Finally, another way to help me out would be to take just a minute to rate and review the show. This really helps others to be able to discover the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm your host, Al Levin. Really excited. Today on the line, we have John McPhee. John is the CEO of the Jed Foundation. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Al. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I am really excited. The Jed Foundation um, has just done incredible, incredible work around um, mental wellness, mental health, and suicide prevention for young adults and and college age folks, and even now a bit younger into the high schools. Uh, before we get into all of that, I would love to hear. I know you, you have dealt with some of your own mental health challenges. And I'm wondering if we could start there. Uh, you know, I, I did read an op-ed that you wrote fairly recently around your D1 college ball and and just the, I think, the overwhelming, I would imagine, just a lot of challenges there. Wondering uh, if we could start with that. Tell us about what it was like playing D1 ball. <laughs> sure. Um, well, you know, I, I grew up playing basketball. I grew up in, in Massachusetts uh, in a suburb of, of Boston in the 1970s and 80s, I'm, I'm 55 years old. And, you know, when I grew up, uh, there wasn't really any conversation about, about mental health, right? It wasn't something that we, we talked about. I, I didn't have a language or really an understanding for it. Um, but I was a very, um, 
shy uh, teenager and and sort of young person, um, comfortable with a small group of friends and, and siblings and family, but you know uh, certainly had social anxiety as I look back on it now. Basketball was an outlet for me. I played basketball all the time, and I uh, by the time I graduated high school, I was quite good, and I had received scholarship offers and the opportunity to play Division One basketball. And I went down to New York City to college to to play. And hey, when John, I was in, uh, yes. let me just let me just interrupt you there for a second. I'm just curious. You talked about in hindsight some social anxieties. What did that look like? Can you kind of describe the social anxieties you you believe now in hindsight that you were dealing with even prior to college? Yes. So I, I found uh, meeting new people and being in new settings to be very scary. Um, and I, I found it, it quite difficult to engage or to talk in ways, um, you know, in, in terms of what you would do if you were in new settings or, or meeting new people. So I, uh, I was quiet. My, my mechanism was to be sort of very quiet, listen to music, you know, kind of, you know, be a little bit more of, um, you know, of a, of a sort of loner with the exception of just a, a group of friends that were my basketball friends, really, you know, okay. and, and, and my teammates. So that gave me a, a built in, a built in community. Um, but I wouldn't, I would not, you know, raise my hand in a classroom or, you know, express my opinions, you know, uh, in different, in different settings. I would do that very, very rarely. I would have uh, a lot of internal, um, just a lot of internal anxiety, um, really pretty much on a, on a daily and, and, and regular basis. Um, but I didn't, I didn't understand it to be anxiety, right? I just felt like that's just sort of, you know, how, how I was, how I was, how I was built. And was it just kind of a fear of meeting people and putting yourself out there? Or did you actually have like physical symptoms? I mean, would your stomach, would you feel it in your stomach, your chest? I did have physical symptoms actually. Yes. And, and my stomach would, would go crazy and you could hear it like in classrooms, yeah. which was, which was, um, you know, embarrassing and add um, to the anxiety, I'm sure th that's right. And, and so what happened to, to me personally is, is I was probably about 16 or I was 16, uh, when I first, uh, drank alcohol. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I used alcohol, uh, in my teen years and through my young adult well, for quite a while as a way to sort of deal with, um, you know, that, that discomfort, and I think that, you know, um, even though I wasn't consciously thinking about it, I think alcohol's, you know, disinhibitory uh, effects uh, were something that that I wound up leaning into for, you know, for the years of my life in, in ways that weren't, you know, the healthiest. Right, right. So it started even in high school, age 16, just kind of drinking yes. on the weekends when you were with your friends. And it sounds like you did have a core of friends. They were all from the basketball team, but, but it sounds like you were able to be social and so forth. But um, how frequently would you say you were drinking in high school? Just weekends or more? Uh, mo no, mostly weekends. But, but then certainly there, was, there were stretches where you we were probably drinking three, four, five nights a week. It was also part of the culture, you know, um, right. you know sort of suburban you know, predominantly Irish working class suburb of, of Boston in the 1980s, you know, it, it wasn't, it was the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so then you get to, to college and you're getting a bunch of uh, scholarship opportunities, which is really cool. Was that, was that a surprise to you or was it just kind of like you knew they'd be coming? 
Well, it, it, it was a surprise at first because when I started playing basketball, which was like in seventh, eighth grade, you know, I wasn't that, I mean, I'm, I'm six foot eight. So I, I, I was growing and I was awkward and very skinny and I was, I was not very good at first, but I really, really stuck with it. Um, and I had, I had one coach in particular who, who was the head of the um, CYO, Catholic Youth Organization Basketball, which was really big back then. And he saw potential in me and, and really encouraged me to work really hard at the craft. And early on, maybe I was in ninth grade, he told me that he believed I could um, play uh, college basketball, Division One basketball, and that it could be, in essence, a ticket for me to, you know, to sort of go wherever I wanted to in the country and open up a lot of doors of opportunity. Um, and, and that really resonated with me. So I worked very, very hard on my game. By the time I was a junior and, and a rising senior, I knew that I was going to be able to um, play college basketball, you know, mid-level division one, um, and that I could go to a school that would give me substantial financial aid or, or scholarship. That is so cool. So what did, what did that look like? I mean, were you practicing even outside of practice all the time? Did you have additional coaching or were you just like busting your rear end as hard as you could every practice you had? Yeah. So, um, we would play outside. There were actually very good games where I grew up, um, you know, outside after school evening games. Um, so I played games. Pickup games, but yeah. high le- high level pickup games. Right, you know, it, was, right. it was like a, it was a different world back then. New England Patriot players who who would who were, the Patriots played near where I grew up would come and play with us. You know, awesome. play, p- players from Boston College and Boston University would come and play with us. You know, now they now you know that's sort of not allowed. They worry people are going to get hurt. Right, um, right. And and then my coach, you know, he he had a, pr- a program for us in terms of the skills and the things that we needed to work on. Um, and so we just, we just played, you know, all the, all the time it was, it was not just a a game. It was my, uh, my sort of social structure and a very important part of my identity. And it helped me, uh, gain confidence actually. Um, and it helped me sort of own my height, which was also really awkward for me, you know, um, six, six foot, six foot eight, 155 pounds, braces glasses the whole you know sort of the the whole thing and and basketball helped me um you know feel good uh or or over time it took time but it helped me feel you know more comfortable sort of with my body and my size which at first made me feel like a you know an awkward standout and i think contributed to my feeling anxious in a lot of situations right right wow so so scholarships start rolling in and uh, tell us, how, how did you choose the school and, and the team? Because I'm, I'm sure the team was a big part of it. Uh, well, when, when my, a coach, my coach came to my house to tell me and my uh, parents that there were schools expressing interest that wanted me to visit, my mother um, you know, became very attentive to the conversation. And she was, like, <laughs> she was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that... Um, Schools are going to, you know, either give us, you know, depending on their structure, a scholarship or, you know, substantial financial aid for him to play basketball for them. And the coach is like, yeah. So my mother basically literally took over the process, sat okay. with the coach, kicked me out. Okay. Kicked, <laughs> kicked, kicked me out and, and gave him the list of schools that he was allowed to talk to, you know, on my behalf. Um, 
And what she was doing was she was picking schools that she knew were, you know, uh, would be good places for me to go academically. Right. She was yeah, she was yeah. she she basically was working to use basketball to leverage basketball, um, you know, for the financial support, but also to put me in, a, in an academic setting, um, you know, that would challenge and stretch me, but but might open up, you know, uh, you know, opportunities for me. At least for that's sure, how she for sure. she viewed it. So she told and him. How this, did you yeah, feel yeah. about that at the time when you were in high school? Were you kind of like, "Mom, I want to say in this," or were you like, "No, that's great, Mom, help lead the way"? No, I, I definitely was deferential to my mother, and she, you know, and she could lead the way. And yeah. you know, I I, I did want to go to college at that time. I'd say in my town, probably half the students, maybe fifty to sixty percent of students, went to college and. Um, the others went directly to, into the workforce. Okay. Um, and, but I, I was, I was a good student. Um, I didn't, I wasn't really trying that hard, but I, I was, uh, a good, uh, you know, pretty good student academically. Uh, and because of that and the basketball, my mother essentially told, uh, the coach to focus on the Ivy league and, and, um, you know, in schools that, uh, in, in a, in a set of other schools, uh, as well. And I did a whole bunch of uh, school visits um, and went through that process and met all the coaches and, and decided uh, to go to Columbia University in New York. Wow. Awesome. How many different schools would you say you visited? I visited, I'd say seven, probably in, okay. in terms of like, you know, deep, uh, you know, deep visits and, and serious consideration. Right. Right. So you end up at Columbia University. How far from your home at the time was that? A train ride. So let's say a four-hour drive or or uh, a four-hour train ride. Okay, pretty Five good distance, yeah. right? Like you could get home if you really wanted to, but you were far enough away from home if that was important to you. That's right. Exactly. You could go home for a weekend. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that that is pretty pretty convenient. Yeah, that's a, that's about what I did as well. Living in Minnesota, I went to school at Madison, Wisconsin. It was like a four-hour, four and a half-hour drive. Was, it was kind of nice. Do you think that was a factor for your mom's choice as well? Like, no, we're not looking super far away. He's going to be near home. I do. Yeah, I do. And we were looking, you know, primarily at, at schools that were in that kind of, uh, you know, in that kind of a radius. Um, and but but actually, as it turned out, Columbia was not my my mother's first choice for me, um, uh, although she certainly liked it. She she felt that some of the other schools had more um, scaffolding and structure around academic supports for athletes. Uh, and she was rightly worried that, um, you know, that I might not be um, as uh, diligent about my academics and schoolwork uh, uh, as I probably should be. She's, right. she, for, she, she foresaw that. Okay. And she certainly gave you some, uh, a little bit of decision-making power there as well, seeing that you didn't even end up at her first choice, but you, but it was one that was from her list. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So tell us, uh, you, you start to pack up and you're leaving for school. Um, tell us about your entry into college. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was drawn to Columbia and I'm still very involved with Columbia today. And I, I went on later in my life to get a public health degree from Columbia. So I love the school. Um, but I, you know, I was drawn to it as a high school student because it, the city, New York city struck me as just being so big and different than anything I had ever seen. Uh, and when I visited, you know, it was clear there was just such a diverse, uh, student population, you know, people from all over the world, which also was something that was very, very new to me. I mean, when I grew up, I'm half Italian, half have Scottish, um, you know, uh, through both sides of my family, all, all four of my grandparents are immigrants to the United States. 
Um, uh, but the town I grew up in was essentially like 18,000 Irish Catholics, you know? And right. so, and, and so, you know, to me, New York city and Columbia, I was just drawn to it. I was like, wow, this is like the most extraordinary, you know, place and, and collection of people I had ever seen. I hadn't even sort of dreamed that it existed, you know? Um, and Columbia is right in the city. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. But, but when I arrived, you know, uh, uh, to the positive, I was immediately, of course, on the basketball team and had that, that structure in, in my teammates and coaches. But I was overwhelmed um, almost right away on several fronts. You know, one was I had um, very little money, like, you know, many students do, but I had never seen the kind of wealth that many of the students had. Um, and their ability to sort of go out and do whatever they wanted. And I, I couldn't, right. Right, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't even sort of, you know, ask her, first of all, I I would, I was too anxious to ever ask a girl out anyway, but, but I didn't, I I didn't have the money, uh, you know, um, anyway to, to, to sort of do it. So I, I sort of, I quickly realized that my, my options were, you know, sort of more limited and that other people had options. I had no idea anyone even actually sort of had, you know, um, and, um, and I, I struggled academically. I went into the engineering program at first. I struggled academically also sort of right away. And my anxiety, uh, was so much because now I was in settings where like, you couldn't just be quiet in class. They're like calling on you, right? you know, which, which was a whole new, a whole new dynamic. Um, and I was doing my absolute best work at first. Um, because I was so intimidated and I was getting like, you know, C's and C pluses and, and, you know, and I was like, uh, uh Oh, (laughs) and and I was, um, you know, putting in so many hours, you know, playing basketball and I made the varsity team as a, as a first year student. And, and, and and the whole thing was really, really, um, difficult to manage and, and overwhelming. Um, and so I wound up on academic probation after that first semester, um, and that began, a, you know, that was the beginning of several semesters of academic probation. And ultimately, so so yeah. I, I hear you saying, John, like uh, the kids just kind of socializing and, and so many were on a whole different level financially and could do so much without even caring. You were kind of grappling with that while at the same time your, your academics struggled. You made the varsity team. One piece I haven't heard you talk about yet. Um, I'm wondering, was there much pressure as a freshman on this varsity team? And what was that like? I mean, I've, I've had some professionals on this show and they talk about the jump from high school to college D1 as just like massively stressful. Um, you know, they were the best on the field at first and then they come to a whole field of standouts and no longer did they shine. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a, a little bit about your introduction to college ball. Yes. So that certainly is what happened in my case. Right. I, I, I was the star of my high school team and, um, you know, had a number of recognitions across the state of Massachusetts. And in college, on the one hand, it was a great accomplishment that I, I made the varsity team as a first year student because not all the first year students did. I think there were four of us that that made the varsity team. But on the other, you know, I was a practice player. I, I, I hardly got into any games as a first year student. Um, and uh, and there was a lot of pressure and it became clear that I was not going to be a star on this team, you know, right, right. Um, 
I, I was more of a role player, um, you know, and at, at my sort of peak, I started some games. I, I might have been the sixth man, seventh man, you know, contributing valuably, but was, was, was not a star. And that, that is, yeah, a huge psychological adjustment, um, you know, to, to experience as a, as an athlete. Yeah. And, and did that also impact your mental health as you were talking about grades going down, academic probation? Was this another added stressor and knowing you're receiving a scholarship to be on there? So I would say, I'd say yes, but only, only to a point because basketball was a refuge. I loved my teammates, right? I love my teammates. And so I felt like I belonged when I was with my teammates and I was on the bus and I was, you know, uh, and and we were together and I felt like I did not belong when I was a student outside of the context of basketball. Right. And, and, you know, and then when I was struggling academically, you know, I felt like, and, and meanwhile, no, you know, of course, probably nobody was paying attention to me, but I thought everybody was paying attention to me. And they were like, you know, he's only here, you know, he's, he's, you know, the dumb big kid. And he's only here because, you know, he plays basketball and, you know, I had those kinds of concepts, you know, sort of, you know, running, running through my head. Um, and my anxiety about socializing, you know, uh, was, was sort of in full force because I didn't, um, I, I did not socialize outside the context of alcohol and, and being drunk. Cause right. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't really do it. So I joined a fraternity and, you know, I met a lot of people. I met a lot of just really, really sort of great people. Um, but, um, but yeah, I was, there's no question that I was a, I was a problem drinker and, and, you know, you know, these things sort of start feeding each other, you know, in terms of then being exhausted and tired and not, not putting in the schoolwork, but also drinking to cope with the fact that I didn't feel like I was good enough or smart enough to do the schoolwork. Um, and one, one of my regrets actually is I, I think that the extent to which I, I drank at the time, um, impeded what I was able to, how I was able to perform in basketball, right. you know, like, like I, I, I wish I could have the time and the experience back and, um, and do it again. Uh, cause I, I, I don't think I would have ever been a star, but I think I could have, you know, had a much better ath- in contributory athletic career, um, if I could have better managed my, my drinking during those years. Well, and I imagine it, it may have impacted your academics in various ways too, right? If you're sleeping yes. in late, if you're feeling crappy because you were up late drinking and so forth. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, so you mentioned academic probation, like how quickly were you put on academic probation and, and how did that impact your mental health? And were you just, was drinking the only way you coped? I, um, I was put on academic probation after the first semester. Uh, so it happened really pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. And, um, uh, and drinking was definitely one of the ways I coped, but basketball was the way I coped also, you know, For again, sure. like I, I, I just, I, I felt comfortable there, but you know, I, so this, my second semester of my first year, I got off probation. I sort awesome. of, you know, but also my basketball coaches really invested in me. They, um, and, and you know, they, they actually talked to all my professors. They made me tell them about all my assignments that were due. They never did my work for me, but they would make me sit in the coach's office and like do my homework and do my assignments. And one one of the assistant coaches would like look at the work again, just to make sure that it was done. It wasn't, it wasn't doing work for me, but it was providing, it was providing scaffolding and discipline. 
that that helped me and I got off probation. Also, when I was a first year, I went to college at 17 years old. So I was just, you know, there was a sort of, you know, immaturity at, yeah. at play at play uh, also. But then my sophomore year, I went back on probation. And then second semester, sophomore year, uh, I might have even been on probation my entire sophomore year. Um, and it was my first semester junior year where um, everything just crashed. Uh, there was a new coaching staff. Um, and I, you, you know, I, it, everything had snowballed. And so what happened was I went to my first day of classes in every class. I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to be found out. And I didn't go back. And, um, what so do you here mean I am. You didn't go back. You, you didn't go back to class. I didn't go back to class. Uh, I went and I went back and I took the midterms and I took the finals. Um, I tried to read along the way, but I did not attend a single class other than the tests. And I was playing basketball every day and playing in games and nobody noticed. Then I'm not, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to criticize Columbia. I love Columbia, but nobody noticed at that time. And I think that was true of all kinds of schools, right? Yeah, it wasn't, oh, for sure. it, you know, it was the 19, it was the 1980s and then all my grades came in and I think I got four D's and a C minus and, um, and you know, I should have got F's, but I think they, they gave D's that it didn't matter. Cause right, this, right. I, I got called in and they were like, you, you, you have to leave. Like, this isn't going to work. You have to, you know, you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to leave. Um, when was that? That was at the end of my first semester as a junior. Okay. So as a junior, they call you into some kind of office, the registrar's yeah. office or something, yeah. and and yeah. they sit down with you and say, "Hey, John, you're done here. You you are, you know, you were on academic probation too long, and and you're failing out, and you can no longer attend." Yes. So wow. so what? Well, so what happened? So let, let me back up a little bit and go. So my story there missed an important part. I did get a reach out from the from one of the deans and his wife. And I, I uh, during the semester, and I was invited along with a few other students to their home for a dinner. And I believe that this, the students they selected were all students that were struggling, and they were trying to, you know, support us. And it was wonderful. Um, and they really, you know, sort of talked to me about, you know, um, sort of wanting to help me and and me doing my part. Uh, but I I couldn't do it. I, I just I, I nonetheless I, I had great appreciation for what they how they were trying to, you know, be supportive adults with me. But I, I, uh, nonetheless, I, I proceeded to not go back to class and to, and to sort of flame out. And I'll go back, I'll also go back to sort of my, I never asked for help, right? right. I didn't ask, people would give me help. I, I didn't ask for tutors. I didn't talk to my mother. I didn't talk to anybody. I just sort of, you know, uh, was in my, was sort of within myself, like, okay, how long I'm with incredible anxiety, like knowing I was, this was all going to be found out. Um, and then yes, they called me into called me in and said, "Listen, this this isn't going to work." I was a student in the engineering school, and they gave me the opportunity to apply to the liberal arts school at Columbia, but that's not an automatic, and I was not accepted on that on that transfer request um, because you know I had struggled so much. And so uh, the school gave me a final semester, second semester junior year, where you're not matriculated, like you're you've you've signed a contract that you're leaving. But they let you stay to take some classes as a way to help you, um, you know, start to shore up your uh, transcript and help you transfer to another school. Right. Um, and so I, I agreed to that. I took that and I applied to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst for transfer. Um, and, and I went through a period there. I was like, this is going to be great. I, I'm better suited for UMass. I'll play basketball at UMass. Um, 
but UMass rejected me on transfer. Okay. And and then that's when I, I went home then, you know, not in a not in a school or in a program and started to to, you know, be sort of scared about what that meant. Um, and my mother was devastated. She was just absolutely devastated. And um, that also helped me, um, you know, because she understood the opportunity that I was I had, um, you know, I don't want to say thrown away, but the opportunity that I had put at, at sort of great risk. Um, and, uh, and so seeing her reaction and sort of seeing the, the, the extent to which she was, it wasn't that she was angry, she was angry by the way, but that's not what resonated with me when I, I saw really sort of how devastated she was. Um, I, it, it started to sink in that, that I had, um, <laughs> I had messed this up pretty bad. Right, right. So it sounds like it was more the disappointment that you were feeling from your mom than, than any kind of anger towards you. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and so then she helped, um, you know, and as a side note, my younger sister uh, failed out of UMass the same semester that I did. So oh, no. we, bo- we both came home in the same situation. Right. Um, and uh, and my mother uh, worked with us. You know, we, we got uh, she she had us. Um, we took classes all summer long. I went to UMass Boston and Northeastern UMass Boston like all day, Northeastern all night, took a set of classes that I enjoyed, political science, history you know, not engineering, not, not as matriculated student, but just taking courses to, to, you know, try to be able to make the case that, um, you know, I had turned the corner, I had learned my lesson and sort of grown up. And, and so I did that. I got very good grades. I enjoyed it. And you were living at home at this point too. I was, I was living at home Gotcha. and, 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 and I had, because of everything that had happened to me that second semester, junior year, I, uh, I pretty much had stopped drinking. Oh, wow. um, awesome. which was, which was a temporary thing in my life, but, yeah. but it really, it really contributed to, to my doing much better academically. Um, and so, you know, to make a long story short, that following fall, um, Columbia, uh, let me back into the school. They did accept me wow. back into liberal arts school, although they, they, several weeks after the, after the um, school year had started, okay. um, I think that the dean of admissions was getting phone calls from my mother every day, and my mother literally, right. my mo- my mother sent me to uh, to live in the fraternity. I wasn't a student at Columbia; I was living in the fraternity and and on campus, um, trying to meet with the admissions officers, like you know, like every day, like please let me back in. My mother won't let me go home. <laughs> I have nowhere to go. You know. So you were living on campus, <laughs> pretending to be a student, just hoping they would let you in, and it worked. It worked. Yeah, it, that's it, awesome. It did. It, it worked. And, 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 you know, parts of this story really contributed to, to, you know, why, why I really love what we do at Jed and what, what had me come to Jed. Um, there was also, you know, there were people, uh, at, at, at the school really advocating for me, yeah. coaches, there was an admissions officer who, who, you know, got to know me during that process and, and felt that I was worth a second chance. And so, That's you know, so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, so this idea of supportive or caring adults and sort of, yeah, men, yeah, you yeah. know, there, there were several, including, including my mother, um, and, and family, um, you know, that, that really helped guide me, guide me through this. And I, and of course I recognize that there's so many people that are not fortunate, um, to have, uh, that kind you of know, support system. yeah, that kind of support system yeah. or safety net. Uh, it's interesting to me to hear that even the coaches were helping to fight to get you back when you weren't a starter, you weren't one of the top players, but it sounds like they were still advocating heavily for you to, to return. They were, and and people in the athletic department, and um, that's so cool. Uh, 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I'm grateful so you for did that. go back and you, and you did end up graduating from there and did you continue your yes. path with, with the basketball team and, and were you then like actually going to school and attending classes and everything? I did. So yeah. I, I went, I went back, I joined the basketball team. I played as a senior, uh, the entire year awesome. and I, and, and I had I actually turned out, I played, I think 13 games as a junior before I had to leave the team. So I technically I I you know I played all four years and right. you know varsity letter all four years, but as a senior I I performed academically I got like a three you know I mean nice. but I I did um I did pretty I did pretty well um and it is true I think part of it is that I I grew up um and uh, took things took things a little bit more seriously and the work the work I did in the, uh, at uh, Northeastern and UMass Boston also I think really helped me build up some confidence that. I was a capable student, you know, yeah. and I, and, and I could, and I could do the work. Although the entire time I was at Columbia and even beyond into my young adult years, I still was someone who, um, you know, didn't talk a lot, especially to people that I didn't know. Right. Um, and, and still continued to struggle with, um, you know, with, with feelings of anxiety or, and not, not, not fitting in and, and that kind of thing. Right. Right. So you ended up graduating from Columbia, which is fantastic, and you weren't drinking anymore. Was your anxiety kind of getting much better, or what would you say, how would you describe your mental health state when you graduated? Well, so during the period of time that I was trying to, you know, get back into school, so I drank much less. I I pretty much didn't drink my second semester junior year, the end over the summer. As a senior, I drank a little bit, but completely different than... um, than, you know, the way I, I had been drinking for the first, you know, two and a half years of, of college. Right. But then when I entered the workforce and sort of from there, I, I went back to, you know, uh, uh, drinking. But, you know, I, 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 you know, I did very well in my career. So I, I was, you know, I, I sort of think of myself as um, a lot of people around me would be surprised to hear me say that I think I was a problem drinker because I achieved a lot of great things. And I, right. you know, showed up and did a lot of things. But I know that I, you know, for a long time drank more than I should have and it wasn't healthy. And I know that I was um, underprepared in a lot of sort of situations and not my best, but, you know, I got away with it. Um, uh, But but in fact, I've, you know, in terms of not drinking, I've been uh, alcohol free now for three years, but I didn't, but I didn't, I didn't really stop until I was 52. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, first of all, thank you so much. I give you so much credit for saying like, I I was a problem drinker because like you said, you showed up, you had some, you've had a great career that we'll talk about soon, but, and you could easily stand here today and say, Oh, drinking was never a problem. Look at my history. Look at, you know, I graduated from Columbia. I had some great jobs and drinking was never an issue. Nobody can tell me that. And here you are saying, yeah, I drank too much and I recognize that and it did impede some of my performance even. But um but you're well aware of that and sharing that. Tell us a little bit about why it's important you to share that. Well, I mean, it's been a, so I, again, there are a lot of people who would who would contest what I'm saying. We're very close to right, right. like no, like you're good, you like sh-. but I, you know, um I I know that, you know, I tried to sort of, you know, slow it down or stop several times in my, you know, in my life where I'd be like, you know, I'm going to give it up for Lent to prove to myself that I, and it was always more difficult than it, than it should have been and difficult in a way that like it registered with me where I'm like, you know, 
okay, I, you know, I have this under control, but like, maybe it's like barely under control, you know, kind of feeling. Right. But now that I, but now that I haven't had a, uh, a drink for three years and, and I, and by the way, I, and I stopped because of a, a health issue, you know, not, I, 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 if I had a, I had a health issue, um, where the doctor's like, you really should not be drinking for, for at least six months. That's what put me in the situation now where I haven't had any alcohol for three years. Gotcha. So like just, just all of it together. And, you know, and I think, and just with the, with, you know, time and wisdom, as I look back on it, on all of it, you know, I do, I do feel that it, it, it compromised, um, you know, it took a lot of hours away from me and, and in quality hours and it compromised, um, how I, uh, you know, sort of what, what I, what I might've otherwise done, although I've done a lot and I'm really happy. And I, you know, yeah. I, I don't know, it would really change very much, but you know, I can't, I don't look back on, on drinking and say drinking was a positive in my, in my life. You know, right, it, it, right. it was a, it was a positive in the sense that like, I mean, it did make me, it did help my anxiety and social situations, I, I guess, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, and I think that, yeah. I think that that's, you know, part of, part of why I felt it was a necessary part of socializing. Well, you know, and, for, and, for a long time. Yeah. And I want to just point out, like, again, that was your coping mechanism, right? With to deal with your anxiety and it was self-medicating. And I want to make sure, cause I know you would not suggest that to, to college students. Yeah. yeah you know, it was no. helpful. It helped me socialize because but, I want to reiterate, like, you were talking the eighties and, and there weren't resources for you. It wasn't easy to reach out to say I'm struggling with anxiety. And now we have so many better ways to cope and to, to, that's right. To that's manage right. our anxiety. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so thanks for, for clarifying that. Cause in no way am I saying it was a successful coping mechanism. <laughs> right, <laughs> it, was, it failed. I think I, I, I believe I, I was turning to it to sort of try to cope or, or sure. whatever, but, yeah, but, yeah. but no, it, 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 it uh, in terms of in terms of what happened to me and sort of you know my struggles in my young adult years, I think that um, you know the yeah the way I approached drinking was was a significant part of the problem. Right, not, right, not a solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Tell us about uh, just a little bit. I know um, you won an award through Columbia University for your work since then as an alum. I'd love to hear about that. And then just tell us a little bit about your career path that brought you uh, all the way to JED, the JED Foundation, so we can start talking about the JED Foundation as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was grateful to receive a recognition from the Columbia School of Public Health um, in uh, 2016, uh, which just rec- you know recognizes an, an, an alum for uh, contributions to, to the public health field, and and that award was really about the work of the Jed Foundation, um, and uh, you know the, which I know we'll go into, but it was really you know I mean they recognized me, but it was really recognizing the work of, of the Jed Foundation, the team at Jed, and um, but, but anyway, it was a nice it was a it was a nice honor, and in fact we do we do follow a public health approach at, at Jed in the work we do. Yeah. That's awesome. And tell us right out of college, you, you right away went into kind of public health type of field. No, no. So when I got out of college, I I just basically needed to pay the bills and needed a job. And, and actually, uh, a lot of companies wouldn't even interview me because back then there was a whole thing. If you didn't have a 3.0, like such and such a company you couldn't even interview with. Um, so I, I took my first job in the shipping industry, my first job after college in the shipping industry, I'd worked, you know, since I was probably about 13 in different part-time jobs, but my first full-time post-college job was working for a shipping company in inside sales, and actually, it was the only job I could get, by the way. And it was a great it was it was a great job, but I like took the first job I could get because I, I had had a hard time getting a job. 
And literally everybody in my family just like started laughing when I said I was going into sales. They're like, you don't talk. (laughs) (laughs) How are you going to, you know? Um, And so I I went into the shipping industry and um, I I learned a lot, um, you know, uh, about sort of logistics and customer service. And um, I switched companies early on. And actually the two companies wound up merging later. Uh, But they paid for business school. And so I went to NYU business school at night, um, paid for by the company. Uh, it took me about four and a half years, but I was driven to do that because I wanted to like have a redo on my academic career, right. you know, and, and sort of, um, you know, sort of prove to myself, you know, that if I picked the courses and et cetera, I could do very well. And so I went to NYU at night, um, from 92 to 96, um, and, uh, and did very, very well and really enjoyed that, that experience of going to night school, um, you know, while I was working. That's awesome. And from, yeah. from there, did that, uh, lead to kind of a change in the career? Yeah. So, so what happened uh, was, uh, so I, I let the shipping, the shipping company stopped paying for business school and I was, you know, more than halfway through it. So I'm like, or halfway through it. So I'm like, I, somebody has to pay for this. I, I need to finish. So I went to a pharmaceutical company because they paid for business school okay. and, no other reason. That's why I went into the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went into sales, and then I got into marketing, um, and I wound up having a twenty-year career in pharmaceuticals. And I met a lot of great people, learned a lot of great things. Was and, that also sales? Well, it was sales, and then it was marketing, and then okay. I became what, what's called a product manager, and ultimately uh, a vice president, and then a president of a of a business, a general manager. Wow. Um, and I, I actually had the opportunity to work on and launch Celexa and Lexapro, which are two big antidepressants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nemenda, which is an Alzheimer's uh, uh, drug. Um, so I, I really, you know, I'm really grateful for the career. I learned a lot about the healthcare system. I met so many great people. Um, but I didn't choose it, right? It took me a long time to sort of figure out that, you know, I, I was getting promoted. Uh, you know, I, I was doing really well. And for me, that was important because if I go back to like my experiences in college, I think I was trying to prove to myself, like I had a little chip on my shoulder, like I, 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 I am capable. Right. right so right. I, I worked unbelievably hard. Like yeah. I really, really worked incredibly hard and I was promoted like 10 times in 10 years and all of this stuff. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't chasing anything purposefully other than maybe, maybe trying to build up my own self-worth in a way I, you know, and, and 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 how was your mental health at this point? You know, at the time I felt it was good, but I was really driven just working really really hard (laughs) and, 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 and and drinking, um, and drinking, you know, still probably more than I should have, but again, but able to perform in my jobs that that's, that's that, that's that whole high performing, high performing thing. Right. Um, you know, I started to get, I started to get more comfortable. I'd say my, you know, my, my mental health, uh, I, I have not found myself in a, in a, uh, in a, in a major depressive, uh, disorder episode. Like I believe I was as a young adult, I still have anxiety depending on, you know, the situations, but, um, you know, with time I've become, um, yeah, I, I can, I can sort of manage it, you know, uh, better. And it's, it's not as, it's not as, it's not as prominent. Yeah. You hadn't mentioned a, a depressive bout, but you feel like you've certainly dealt with depression as well. 
I, I believe in my young adult years through that period of time that I, I was, if I had, if I had gone to a mental health clinician, I would have been diagnosed with both major depressive disorder and yeah. anxiety. And they often I, go I hand that. in hand. And are, are you talking yeah. about your years after graduating college or throughout that experience? Throughout that experience and, yeah, and, and, right. and probably early on, early on afterwards. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I guess you could say my, you know, to the extent that maybe I have an addictive personality, I became a workaholic. Right, right. You know, which and, can and, at times be unhealthy, right? If it, yeah, if if you yeah. don't have any kind of balance in your life and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then over time, I, I just started to think that I would like to do some for purpose work, you know. And I started looking at getting involved in nonprofits. Um, something more meaningful to you. Something more meaningful to me, you yeah. know. Um, and I had a conversation with my mother. Actually, she she uh, twenty years ago uh, this summer she died uh, of cancer, and she died oh, I'm sorry. Ab- about yeah. It was that that was um, that was rough. But she died. She died about five months after uh, she was diagnosed, and it was very uh, unexpected. Yeah. Um, and so, but that led to a, you know a lot of conversations with her. You know, really, really sort of great and beautiful but blunt conversations, you know, um, that she had with me. And I think she had with everybody in in our sort of family about how she viewed things. And her message to me was that she felt, you know, that, that her message to me was that, you know, the, the, when I was younger, I wanted to be a math teacher and a high school basketball coach. Right. And sort of in community. And here I was as like this business executive. And she felt that my, uh, the money that I had earned in my house and my Audi and all this kind of stuff was, um, ransom you know so she she literally said to me that you've been uh in her view you've been kidnapped and and you're sort of being held for ransom by your lifestyle by wow. the work and it's not you you've been kidnapped by yeah. all of this other wow by all, like you said by blunt, all huh? blunt, yeah, blunt and powerful holy crap what yeah. a message yeah. yeah and that was that was pretty much the last conversation we had but it was loving like absolutely oh, yeah absolutely sort of loving. And, um, so, you know, that was a really sort of important catalyst in just my thinking about like, well, what can other chapters look like? I, I, whatever it is that I was trying to do or prove, I, I feel like I did in the business world. And again, great people, great experiences, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I, I left that the business world and I, I went back to school for, uh, public health and, and went to Columbia school of public health when I was 41, 42 awesome. to, awesome to sort of, you know, reboot into that. And, and then I, um, and then I joined the Jed foundation in 2011. Wow. And so that's, you know, that was in, 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 you know, went into a new, a new chapter in my career, which is now I'm in my, in the 12th year of that, that new chapter. 12th year as the CEO of the Jed foundation. Yes. That is so awesome. Cool. Wow. What a path. So yeah, now that, uh, we're there, the Jed foundation, tell us just, uh, about the mission and vision of the Jed foundation. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the Jed Foundation is a nonprofit organization with the mission of protecting emotional health and, pre- and preventing suicide for teens and young adults. And this is an organization that was created 23 years ago uh, by the Seitao family. The parents and the, the family uh, lost uh, their 20-year-old son to suicide. His name was Jed. Oh. Uh, and yeah, uh, tragically lost uh, Jed when he was 20 years old and he was a sophomore in college. Okay. And, um, you know, they, they had known that, that Jed was working some things through, uh, but they did not know at the time that he was a threat to himself. Right. And so, 
after he died, uh, you know, the family, um, you know, tried to sort of understand, you know, what happened. And they came to learn that, uh, you know, there were things that maybe they could have noticed. There were things that um, people in in his life uh, did notice. There were some people that had some concerns, fraternity brothers, friends, um, but the dots were not connected, right? To identify him as a young man who needed uh, mental health care and needed it acutely. And so in this journey of discovery, um, Phil and Donna Seitao uh, were, found themselves in a conversation with the president of the University of Arizona. And the president of the university said, you know, I, I would like to do whatever I can to protect the mental health of the students here. But there's more than 30,000 students. What does that even look like? Like, how, how do I, you know, create a mental health safety net on campus? Right. Uh, brilliant question, because that, that, there are so many students to deal with. Yes, exactly. Brilliant question. And it turns out it didn't have an answer. Phil and Donna did not know the answer. Right. And when and when they went looking for an answer, there was no clear answer about what schools should do in terms of best practice or framework. That was the catalyst for creating the Jed Foundation um, to help define what schools and at first colleges and universities should be doing to promote emotional well-being and mental health and reduce risks for suicide. So in the year 2000, the organization was created for that purpose. And uh, over the first many years, the work was about um, convening experts, studying the literature and the science around what communities can do to reduce risks for suicide. They spent a lot of time looking at a successful model that had been implemented by the Air Force, actually, to try to reduce suicides. And it did, in fact, reduce suicides. Uh, among um, members of the Air Force. Uh, And so they took this model uh, in partnership with another group called the Suicide Prevention Resource Center and experts, and they turned it into a framework for colleges and universities. Um, And that, what we call a comprehensive approach, is the underpinning of our work. Uh, And now if I go, and so let's say that that was all done really by 2005, 2006, and that kind of a timeframe. If we go forward to today, at the Jed Foundation, a core part of our work is to help school districts, pre-K through 12 school districts, individual high schools and individual colleges and universities. In partnerships, we help them uh, assess everything they do to support student mental health and reduce risk for suicide. And we help them develop action plans and implement those plans um, to create stronger uh, mental health safety nets for their students. Wow. Cool. So I hear you saying that you actually go into the university, kind of, do you create a team to kind of assess what they are doing, what is working and where they have some shortfalls? We do. And, and, you know, I guess first I, I, I'd like to just say, and this may be obvious, you know, to, to listeners, but schools are such a great place to try to create a mental health safety net and supports because These are the real life places that um, teenagers and young adults spend most of their time. And uh, schools have the people and the programs and the policies and systems that you can purposefully sort of thread together into a culture of caring. Right. Right. And the and the idea around a culture of caring is to create a place where um, the students are learning life skills and in feeling a sense of connectedness and belonging that is protective 
for their mental health, right? And and also, you know, to create a culture where it's okay not to be okay. It's okay yes. to, ra- to raise your hand and to get help and to know how to and where to get help and also to create a culture of help giving. So if you're concerned about somebody else, you, you know, I might say, hey, Al, you know, I've noticed you haven't come to you haven't come to class recently. Is everything okay? I'm here. You know, can I listen? And, and to create this kind of culture. And, uh, and that's what uh, schools provide that opportunity in a way that really no other place does. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it's important, especially in younger grades, um, to also recognize that school can be a difficult place for some students. You know, some students are experiencing bullying or or um, pressures in school, they actually feel like they don't belong or they don't fit in. And so by working in schools, we also can mitigate that, right? We can, we can help uh, in terms of the culture and how schools are supporting students. We can help those students who, who feel less comfortable at school than they do at home. Um, and in that way, we're really uh, creating uh, this culture of caring and safety net for for all students. Right, right. And the JET originally, the, the work was in universities? Yes, it was originally in universities. And uh, over time, we moved into high schools and now into uh, doing the work with school districts as uh, well. That is fantastic. I can tell you as a public school administrator, like we need that in our public schools for sure. Um, are you able to speak to just like, what are the needs you see at the college level? Um, you know, I, I remember hearing like three years ago on NPR, I believe it was just the the number of students seeking mental health support was was hugely increasing. And, you know, there was a good piece noted, like, great, people are willing to reach out for help. And, uh oh, we really have to ramp up our supports to make sure there's not huge wait lists and so forth. What are some of the struggles uh, you hear from the college students? Yeah, so there are several. Um, uh, this is a this is a complicated, you know, sort of multi-layered problem. Um, there's a uh, a great uh, suicidologist, uh, Craig Bryan, Ohio State, who wrote a book, uh, gosh, one or two years ago called Rethinking Suicide. And in that uh, book, he describes suicide as a wicked problem, right? And it really requires a comprehensive response. And right. I, I, I give you that preamble because there's a lot of things going on, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, among a college student population, um, this is the age of expression for uh, most major mental illness. So, you know, uh, you'll have students that have major depression, anxiety, panic disorder, bipolar disorder, an eating disorder, um, you know, uh, et cetera, that may first be emerging. Um, and this may be as many as one out of five. And they are in a new setting and with new people. Um, and, and they may not be quickly diagnosed and they need to be recognized and, and diagnosed. But also, in addition to that, students are dealing with a great deal of stress around um, growing up, um, stu- finances, student loans, uh, finding themselves in the world, you know, uh, concerns about whether they can make it financially. They may be caregivers in their families. Right. They, may have, they may have housing or food insecurity. Um, they may be facing discrimination and bias. Um, microaggressions on, on campus. Um, and, uh, you know, overall now today, uh, young adults are concerned about school shootings, yes. um, you know, uh, vi- uh, vi- uh, other types of violence, yep. um, polarization, climate change. It, there's, there's just an enormous amount of 
stressors and pressures. And, and I would say also, I think that these stressors and pressures and these sort of negative things are most of what they see in the media and in the news and our media and our news are not profiling the many wonderful and beautiful and good things that are happening in the world. And so, um, which are, which are there as well. Um, so there's just an enormous amount, an enormous amount of, of pressure that these, these young adults are, uh, experiencing. And that's what they're, they're telling us. In fact, uh, let me do a little role play for you. This is, this is sort of what we hear. We hear, hold on, you know, don't, don't, I, I hear you, but don't tell me to, you know, do a mindfulness app, get some more sleep, um, uh, spend less time online, you know, uh, and, um, you know, go to therapy so I can better cope with the world. I am upset. I am anxious. I am worried about the state of the world. And I should be, it seems to me the world is on fire because of climate change, school shootings, police violence, and other forms of violence, loss of reproductive rights, polarization, you know, et cetera. Um, and I'm upset and you should be upset too. Right. Like, so, right. It's, it feels like you're gaslighting me by telling me to just, you know, find ways to better cope with it or to, or to be more resilient. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's a conversation that we, we have frequently and, you know, um, it's important. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and, but, but, you know, in that context, nonetheless, it's important we take care of ourselves and we do the things to take care of ourselves, you know, in, in our mental health so that we can advocate so that we can be, you know, in the game to, to continue to make this world uh, a better place. Um, but it is, um, it's an important discussion and it's important to, to sort of understand how, how teens and young adults are looking at the world so that we as older adults, I'm a, I think I said this earlier, you know, I'm a Gen X, um, you know, we can find, uh, we can find our best, um, role to be in a support, a, a supportive adult ally to, to younger people today. Right. Right. And, and I mean, that's not even, you didn't even mention just the fact that some of these kids are so far away from home, um, yes. they're away from any of their support systems and, uh, and then dealing with the pressures of the grades and, and all these other pieces you mentioned, it, it's just it can be enormously stressful for college students these days. It can. And that, and that's why, so we've done good work on stigma reduction and COVID helped with that, right? COVID helped us all sort of look at each other and be like, yeah, this is pretty bad. This is pretty stressful. Um, and so there's now more conversations about mental health and young people are more willing to talk about their mental health and they do talk about their mental health a lot. So more people are seeking help. And as you, you noted, that's putting a lot of pressure on the counseling centers um, and the mental health services at colleges and universities. And in fact, a lot of colleges and universities cannot handle the volume. A lot of counselors have resigned and quit or you know, gone, to, gone to move uh, to work for digital behavioral health care companies. So we have a shortage, not just in college, but across the whole country. We have a structural problem in that we have a shortage of behavioral health care workers. So if you do the really, really hard work of realizing that you need help and you decide to pursue help, you might not be able to find affordable, timely help. Um, and that's a, a really, really significant problem. This is one of the things we help schools look at we, and help them sort of design around. It's not easy, but, you know, how, what is what is the access to care, you know, solutions and how can what can the school do when and how can they refer it into the community? 
when and how can they augment with a telebehavioral health provider? Um, and this is an important part of the work on college and university campuses, but it's also an important issue nationwide for all of us. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if you can get into the nitty gritty a little bit. If a, a college or university reaches out to you, what's the first step? I mean, do you pull in a team? Are you doing assessments? And, and how do you create this culture of caring where students know they can reach out for help, the stigma is dissipated, and they can support others too? Yes. Yeah, so, so if a school reaches out to us uh, and decides that they want to participate in the JED campus program, uh, we enter into a partnership agreement. And that is an agreement to work together for four years. Um, and the first thing that we do is we help the school form a team to oversee mental health planning. Now, they may already have one, and then we may look at the membership and adjust it a little bit, or they don't have one and we help them build it. The team includes uh, mental health services, student affairs, res life, athletics, campus security, buildings and facilities, um, faculty, students, and, and may include some other disciplines. But the, the idea is to get the key people in the administration and also students that touch student life uh, in a multitude of ways. Because the premise here is that uh, supporting student mental health belongs to everybody. It doesn't just belong to the counseling center. So let's get all the leadership on this team. So we form that team. Then uh, a survey is conducted of the students and we use a, a well-known survey called the Healthy Mind Survey, which is from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And so we survey students so we can understand their experiences. Um, how do they think about mental health? Are they willing to seek help? Do they know how to seek help at the school? What are their rates of depression, of anxiety, um, of flourishing, of resilience? And in the survey, we can look at the data to see are there differences by gender? Are there differences by race, race and ethnicity? Um, by whether you live on campus or you live at home? Um, by various such variables so we can see and we can learn are there cohorts of students that are experiencing additive stressors um, that we need to tend to in, in the work. Um, our team at the JED Foundation also does a focus group with students on campus to directly talk to students. And then the next survey we do is we do a survey of the policies and the programs and systems that the school has that map to what we call a comprehensive approach uh, to mental health and suicide prevention. So in, in, in that survey, we're looking at the things the school is doing to help students develop life skills, coping skills, um, you know, things that we might, we might put under the resilience uh, uh, title. But the idea is, do they know how to advocate for themselves, to manage money, to do their own laundry, et cetera? Because these kinds of life skills are protective for our mental health because we, we're, we know how to navigate the world. The second area we look at is about community and connectedness and belonging. You know, is the school purposefully fostering that sense of belonging and trying to identify students that might be isolated? So what kind of clubs and affinity groups are available on campus, mentorship programs, these kinds of things, because they're protective for, for student mental health? Oh, yeah. We know the, the human connection piece and, and social inter engagement and interactions is so important. Yes, that's right. And, and the relationships between, um, 
you know, college age youth and, and older adults can be very, very uh, important. Um, in fact, the Surgeon General in, in, in the advisory that he issued on youth mental health spoke about the importance of supportive adults and supportive adult relationships. So that's one of the things in a culture of caring we're trying to create or help schools create and really foster. Um, and, and so our, our essentially our assessment or our audit of, of, uh, that we help schools go through is looking at these things, but then it also looks at how do you, how can you at a systems level notice if a student is struggling? How do you get them mental health care? Back to our earlier conversation, what can the school provide for mental health care? When and how does the school refer a student to see somebody in the community or perhaps uh, via telebehavioral health? When is it appropriate to uh, contact the family and bring the family in, understanding that the student is an adult, so there are privacy you know, issues there and, and, and potential permissions, but having the policies around that. When might, a student, when might it be best for a student to leave school? When do you bring them back? Um, how is health insurance uh, handled? Is there parity between uh, physical health and mental health in terms of uh, insurance? So this is a very granular process, right? Because the the um, you know the it's in the details, right? The magic is sort of in the details and in, in getting that right. Um, so we also look at crisis procedures and we look at the environment to make sure that like rooftops are secured and uh, window guards are in place and. Um, firearms are secured, you know, in the home and if they're allowed at school, at the school to make sure that if a student is in a suicidal crisis, that uh, access to lethal means is restricted. Right. Um, so, you know, you can see that it's all that right. It's fairly comprehensive. So we look at all of that and we we put together a, a findings report and we talk to the school about all the great things they're doing. Um, and, and schools are doing a lot of great things, but also then places that we see that they can um, strengthen and augment what they're doing. And together with the school, we create a plan and we advise them as they implement that plan and strengthen their approach to student mental health. Wow. It sounds incredibly comprehensive um, and collaborative, which, which yes. I think is so important and individualized, right? Like every university isn't doing the same thing. Every university doesn't look the same. Every university doesn't have the same student population. And it seems like the Jed Foundation takes all of that into consideration. That's right. I mean, it, it is in it is a structured program, but it's also, um, uh, you know, adapted to the context of the school, because exactly as you said, there's many different kinds of schools and they have different resource levels and different student populations. And so it needs to be tailored um, to the school. And it is a very, very collaborative process. And and actually, you know, I my my feeling here is that I think this is an underappreciated um, point. There's a lot that we can learn from the good work that that colleges do, you know, because colleges are a boundary community that have a health center, mental health center, often uh, co-located or or together. And a lot of sort of good community based healthcare and mental health care is happening in those settings. And that I think we can take lessons from actually out into our communities in terms of how we uh, in our communities can create more connectedness and more of a culture of caring. Right, right. So you talked uh, quite a bit about the assessments you do and so forth and hearing from the students and everything. I'm curious, is there a way to measure the impact of the Jed Foundation over that four-year period? Yes. So uh, we collect a lot of data. Um, and so the sources of data are the following. One is that survey I mentioned of students. That survey is done at the beginning of the work, and then it's done three and a half, four years later 
at the end of the work. Right. And so at that school, you can see how students' knowledge and attitudes and behaviors around mental health uh, are changing. And we see that in our work in schools that we work with, that students are more willing to seek help. They feel more comfortable talking to their friends about mental health. Um, we've seen uh, self-reported reductions in binge drinking um, and uh, in, other, in other metrics that are, are quite positive. Um, we also, though, you know, uh, just went through COVID, so a lot of our data is in the COVID period, so some of it's confounded uh, by that. But w- but we see a lot of positive, uh, a lot of positive uh, changes in student attitudes and behaviors towards mental health. The other data set that we collect from schools is we track, you know, how they change their policies, programs, and systems, or how they strengthen them. So it may be that a school did not have a twenty four seven crisis service. And we felt that they should, and they agreed with that, and they put one in place. Or uh, we felt that a school should have naloxone on campus um, with you know, first responders in case a student has an opioid overdose could be reversed. Maybe they didn't have naloxone on campus, now they do. Um, you know, so these are, you know, maybe we felt that they needed to have more counselors and they hired more counselors. So we objectively track how the programs, policies, and systems and approaches of the school are strengthening in our work. And that data has been published uh, by the National Academy of Medicine. And um, and, and it's clear that uh, schools make a number of improvements uh, in their time working in the program with us. Um, and then the last set of data is directly from the schools. And that is around um, looking at the numbers of students that are utilizing the counseling center, uh, the number of reports the school has on suicide attempts, death by suicide, first-year retention rates, graduation rates. Right. And, there, and there we see, and we don't get that data from every school, and uh, you know, it's, we have a lot of that data. It's, it's imperfect in some ways because some schools might uh, collect that data differently than others. Um, but what we do see is that there is a significant increase in the number of students referred for mental health care. So this idea of noticing a student needs help and then getting them the help um, is, is, is there in the data. We also see improvements in first-year graduation rates, first-year retention rates, sorry, and six-year, four- and six-year graduation rates um, as well. So the data overall are are quite compelling, you know, in in the program, and we continue to collect it and to to analyze it. But the the bottom line is that if if a school is committed uh, to do this work, um, they see clear benefits in terms of um, student mental health outcomes. Right. Right. So let's say the four years is up. Do schools have the option to continue work and and deepen that that work with you if they want to maintain that relationship? Or is it just four years and you're done? (laughs) Well, we stay connected to the school and we maintain our relationships and, you know, we work to be very supportive. Um, Historically, we have not had a formal continuation of the program, but we a number of schools have asked for that. And so uh, within the next year, we will be offering an ongoing uh, program after the four years lighter touch, but yeah. you know, a, uh, an ongoing program. We think that that's a, we've learned that's a good idea. We're going to put that into place. Oh, that's awesome. So what about if we move into uh, high schools? I think that was the next step for the Jed foundation to move down into the high schools. And what are some of the differences? I mean, it's a completely different setting, right? You don't have students living, off-campus, like in apartments or on-campus, right? It's students commuting, going home, and and so forth. That's right. and, and what other big differences 
uh, do you see in the work that the Jed Foundation does in colleges and universities compared to once you started the work with the high schools? And when did that work start? Yeah, so, well, we've been doing work relevant to high school students and their teachers and their caregivers for years where we've produced um, campaigns and toolkits and resources and content for for them. A lot of that content has been around this idea of what do you need to do to be emotionally prepared for life after high school? Right. Um, but when we did that, uh, you know, uh, 2015, 16, 17, you know, th- those years, we did not offer a technical assistance program to high schools the way we do for colleges. It was more, we have content and programs that you can use on your own. Right. Um, but, but we were not partnering directly with high schools. In 2021, we started partnering directly with high schools in a very similar way uh, that we do to colleges, though the program is a three-year program, not a four-year program. Okay. Um, and uh, we now work with over 100 high schools and that program is growing quickly. But to your question, there are very important differences. You know, just, just as you noticed, right, uh, or you noted uh, students are living, you know, in the community at home. They're also minors, right? They're under 18. Yeah. And, and so they're earlier in their maturation, in their brain development, their social emotional development. So there are developmental considerations uh, that are very, very important. Also, there's legal considerations because they're not adults. And so, you know, how so, for example, when we survey high school students, in most states, parental consent is necessary. Okay. Right. And in terms of when and how a school might try to uh, respond to and help a student get mental health care, right, the family's going to be involved. And, um, and so interacting with the family, supporting the family is a much bigger piece of the work in the high school setting right. um, than, than it is, you know, than it is in the college setting. And high schools are varied. Uh, they, they're, you know, they're in, you know, different, you know, contexts and parts of the country. They may have less resources. Um, so all of these things, you know, make the program sort of a, a different or more challenging in a way. Another another component is that um, the high school principal has a certain um, span of control, but they may not be able, for example, to change policy because the superintendent right. needs to approve changing policy. So there's also sort of structures around what is in the control of the leader of the high school uh, that is also different, you know, uh, compared to our work in, in college. Yes. And, and that's, part, that's part of the reason that led us to, to create a program to also work with superintendents in, in districts. Oh, it's interesting. I was just going to ask if you do try to pull in the superintendent and then, of course, the school board, too, because they need to, if it's public school, they need to be the ones who kind of approve these policies that move forward. That's exactly right. So we uh, we entered an agreement with the Superintendents Association, which is known as AASA, yep. and they rep- they represent thirteen thousand superintendents wow. uh, in, in in districts around the country. And the Jed Foundation and AASA entered a partnership to create what we're calling the District Program, which is a comprehensive mental health program uh, to be led by superintendents, and. And, and, that, and that includes things like how do you interact and communicate and partner with the school boards? Um, the principles are all the same as I discussed earlier with our college program, but adapted to a district. And the first 20 districts as a cohort are beginning the program uh, in just a few weeks in September. Wow, fantastic. That is awesome. Yes. 
And uh, th- your program also, the Jed Foundation also now works with pre-K through uh, through 12, I mean, through eight, right, prior to high school as well. Yeah, so I, I, it's an important distinction because when we work with the district, the districts are pre-K through 12. Right. So when we do our work with, with a district, with a superintendent, it's we're covering all of pre-K through 12. Gotcha. When we work with an individual school, we only do that with high schools and colleges. We do not work with individual middle schools or elementary schools. We only do the middle school and elementary school via the district and the superintendent. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. And uh, any idea how many different high schools you're actually in at this point? Yeah, with these districts and the individual high schools, I think our uh, beginning this fall will be in something like I want at least 500 high schools. Wow. Um, and you know, and then that will that will continue to grow grow quickly. The scaling is just so different, right? Where we've served 480 colleges, we've either served or are currently serving 480 colleges. And we've been doing that work since 2014. Right. And within, within just a couple of years, we now are serving more high schools. This, the scale at the high school level and the district level is just so much greater because there's about 40,000 high schools in the U.S. and, and something like 3,200 not-for-profit colleges. Right, right. Um, how might a, a student, whether they're in the high school or the college level, it be impacted by the Jed Foundation. Are there other ways other than the, these incredible systemic pieces that you're looking at where an individual can um, work directly with the Jed Foundation? I mean, the one thing that comes off the top of my mind is I know the Jed Foundation website has some incredible blog posts and resources there. So an individual student may just reach out there for some help. Yes, that's right. And so we focused our discussion so far on the schools program. But the Jed Foundation um, is supporting 13 to 30 year olds in a, in a variety of ways. So we uh, we operate campaigns. We have a campaign called Seize the Awkward. I love that, that campaign, by the way. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And that's a collaborative, uh, isn't it? It is a collaborative between yeah. the Jed Foundation, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, our, our great friends at the, uh, AFSP, and Jed co-owned that campaign. And we uh, we work with Ad Council on it uh, as well. And so the three of us um, have been working on that campaign since like 2017. And the whole idea is to foster communication and, and uh, you know, between friends. Like, it, you know, if you have a gut feeling or you're concerned a friend is struggling, how do you start that conversation? How do you support them? Um, and so that's a major initiative. Uh, and we also we also have, you know, many others all around this idea of, you know, showcasing young people with lived experience yes. and try and, and trying to, you know, normalize this idea that, you know, um, it's okay to struggle and how do we support one another? And, and this idea of how do we support one another is actually, you know, sort of strategically purposeful because if we go back to what we talked about earlier, we don't have a mental health care infrastructure that is robust enough. Um, and we have real problems in our healthcare system anyway. You know, we have a lot of uninsured people, a lot of underinsured people, can't afford care. Um, and so we can't, you can't just go see, a, a, you, you, we have to take care of each other, you, you know, in addition to getting professional care when we need it. But the village has to deploy yes. uh, as, as well, you know, into sort of that culture of caring and community among 
all of us sort of looking out for each other. And, and that's what we're, that's what we're trying to foster, uh, as well, you know, in terms of culture change, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so seize the awkward was one, um, what are some other community collaborative programs that you have going? Well, so we work with um, community-based organizations, mentoring organizations. We do a lot of education. So we'll go into schools and community groups and, uh, and educate about how to support teen and young adult mental health, for example. Um, and so to your question about how young people can get involved with JED, we have advisory boards, we have internships, we have volunteer opportunities. So I would encourage... Um, you know, uh, anyone who wants to get involved to, to just contact us at info at jedfoundation, you know, dot org. Um, and our website has a lot of ideas as well around how, how, uh, people can get involved and, and work with us and, and, and on our mission. Yeah. And, and I think you, uh, you, t- the one thing I just want to highlight, seize the awkward. I mean, the piece I remember of it, checking it out a few years ago, actually, was a lot of short video clips about um, encouraging people to ask one another about how they're really doing. Yes, and, yes, exactly. And, and they were hilarious, very funny, too. And then I know you touched on this a bit, but uh, there's a strong belief in sharing stories, right? Yes, that's right. So you know, in terms of uh, stigma reduction and, and really sort of helping people know that they're not alone, the sharing of stories is very, very important. And messengers are very important. So for people to be able to see people like themselves um, and also people that they might look up to, uh, you know, talking about these kinds of issues is a very, very important and effective way um, to let people know that you know, uh, they're not alone. The, the experience has been shared by others. Yeah. And so we try, we try to do that a couple of different ways. One is just sharing the stories of, you know, regular people that, you, you know, um, that are sort of just like you. And, but then also by engaging people like Billie Eilish, for example, with Seize the Awkward, who did a PSA for us, um, you know, and spoke beautifully about, um, you know, reaching out for help and also supporting others. Ah, that's so cool. That's awesome. So if, uh, if there's a student out there who's wondering if the Jed Foundation is connected with their university, um, how, how might they find that out? Well, so we list the schools on our website. There's a little bit of a, of a delay, but they could also ask their school leadership. Okay. Um, and what I would say to students and I would say to parents and caregivers in communities or people who are connected to a school, the first key question is not whether or not they're working with the Jed Foundation, right? The, the, the key question is, does the school have a plan for how they're supporting student mental health? Yes, that's huge. And, and you know, not, not just whether they have some programs, but do they have a comprehensive plan? And is it written down? And is it something that is shared with the community? Because that really should be in place. Yeah. Most, most schools don't. I mean, they have so much going on, right, that they might be doing some good work, but, but this is sort of not operationally, <clears throat> excuse me, operationally baked in. <clears throat> so that's the place to start. And then at the Jed Foundation, we'd be happy to help the school, you know, uh, do that and put the systems in place to make that happen. But what we're envisioning is a world in which, you know, this is um, standard course, you know, schools, school districts, uh, and, and by the way, out employers, every boundary communities, employers, faith communities, towns, yes. you know, all have a plan, objectives and strategies and tactics for 
how they're supporting the the well-being of uh, their constituents. Yeah. Um, and that's really what we're what we're uh, you know advocating for. Yeah, that's so important. I love the term that you use, the caring community, right? So that that you get rid of the stigma, you can talk about your own challenges, you can reach out comfortably for help, and, and as a friend, you can ask somebody like how they're really doing. Yes, yes, that's right. So, what about um, schools, uh, universities, even high schools? If they are interested in the work of Jed and and looking at a partnership, is the best way for them to reach out? Also, just the website. It is, and and in fact, if it's a school, then uh, you know they can reach out uh, to Ethan. Uh, <laughs> I'll give them the exact person: Ethan Fields at JedFoundation.org. But literally, they can call our main number. Uh, and you can also email info at jedfoundation.org where we're easy to find. Wow. And we, we, yeah. Okay. That is awesome. So, uh, the, the last question that I ask, uh, all of my guests is if there's a person out there right now who is struggling, um, what, what's your biggest piece of advice that you would give them? Well, I, I'd want them to know that, you know, they're not alone and that help is available. And I would really encourage them to, if they have someone uh, that they can connect with a family member, um, a family friend, uh, a friend, you know, to, to reach out and to, and to talk to somebody else um, uh, about the fact that they're, that they're struggling. I'd encourage them to reach out to Crisis Text Line, which you can reach at 741741 by texting 741741. And if they are, um, you know, having feelings about harming themselves, uh, I'd ask them to reach out to Crisis Text Line, but also potentially to 988, or yeah. not potentially, but, you know, to 988. Um, a lot of times, you know, what happens is that, you know, when we're struggling, we don't want to be a burden to others. And we, we can be really, really reluctant to, to reach out. And uh, so I'd, I would just encourage people to know that, you know, they're not a burden. Yes. And, and, and to reach out. And the other thing, our work is with young people that I, I would want to say about this scenario, assuming it's a young person. Sometimes you're struggling, but you don't know why. And you don't know that it's something that can be addressed and get better. Like you, you, you might think like, this is just who I am. Something's right. wrong with me. And, and that can also hold people back because they don't know that help would be helpful. Right. You know, and, and in those cases, you know, I, I want them to reach out. But if I can broaden the message, I, I also would like to extend the message to everyone in the audience about the, the, the idea of being help givers. So the, the Jed Foundation, and not just us, but, you know, all, all the uh, mental health nonprofits, and even the Surgeon General, we tell young people that they should go to a supportive adult, a supportive adult, a caring adult, right? Yeah. Um, if they're struggling or a friend is struggling, the call to action is tell the supportive adult. And so what I like to say to people that are in a, you know, a little bit older and in a position to be a supportive adult, you know, do you consider yourself a supportive adult? And if so, do the teenagers and the young adults in your life, do they know that you're a supportive adult? Because go tell them. Right. Tell them, tell them that I'm here for you. I'm a safe harbor. I'm a place that you can come no matter what issues or trouble, you know, or challenges you or a friend are, ha are having. I am going to listen. I am going to care. I am going to help. Yes. Um, and, and so that we can sort of build that because, 
you know, young people sometimes don't know who to go to. Um, and I think that those of us who, who really, you know, want to be a caring adult or, or think we are, let's tell them. Yeah. That's a great, great suggestion. Well, John, I want to, uh, personally thank you. I, I want to thank you for all of the work you've been doing. I know you've been the CEO at Jed since 2011. Um, just incredible, passionate work that you're doing. So thank you for that. And I also want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Al. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for, for doing The Depression Files. It's incredibly important work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. All right. Will do. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.